For those of us in here, as you probably know, we are in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 2. And I tell you, I think many of you can understand and relate to this. Just when I think I've seen the power that God's Word has to offer, He gives more. We're only on chapter 2, and the deeper we get into this book, the more amazed I become at the Word of God. I know that many of you would say the same. I've been reading the Scriptures for pretty much my whole life, and I realize more each day I've just barely scratched the surface of the truth of God, the wisdom, the wonder, the love, the justice, the character of God. And as you're going to see as we dive into chapter 2 here, God will not cease to amaze us, particularly through His Word. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and as you may know, this, this book is all about God miraculously, miraculously delivering the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. And we're going to soon read about the ten plagues that God brought down upon that nation and how He parted the Red Sea. And we're going to read about the Mount Sinai experiences where God, for the first time since creation, in a distinct way, came back down among men and revealed Himself. So much more. This is undeniably one of the most fascinating historical accounts given in any of the books of the Bible. And the thing is, it was written for us. You know 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I want to remind us again today that the book of Exodus was written for us. We can't lose sight of that as we work our way through this, this book. Exodus was written to guide our lives, to teach us, to reprove and correct us when necessary, to train us in what is right. And what a dynamic start we had last week in chapter 1 on the fear of God. Two women, by virtue of the grace of God in their life, trusted and feared God and defied the king of Egypt. Let's quickly recap last week so that we're all on the same page before we dive into chapter 2. Big picture. The people of Israel, the Hebrews, have grown immensely to a population of about 2 million. They are guests, they're foreigners in the land of Egypt, thanks to Joseph, who you can read about at the end of the book of Genesis. That's another amazing, gut-wrenching, tear-jerking, tear-jerking, fascinating story of how God worked through one small person. But 300 plus years later, Israel has now since fallen out of favor with the kings of Egypt, so much so that they have become brutally, ruthlessly, the Scripture says, enslaved by the current Pharaoh. He fears that they might overtake Egypt, so much so that, that they might join forces with other allies, and not only leave, but perhaps even wipe out Egypt. And so the Pharaoh works them harder and harder than ever. True slave labor. 
But as we saw last week, that's not working. And at the end of chapter 1, we see that the Pharaoh has now resorted to full force infanticide. How timely that Jen would share today, share today with us on the value of new life. Interestingly, she and I didn't plan that together. That's just the way it happened. God planned it that way. As Christians, you know that we don't just stand for life because we think babies are cute. We stand because we believe that every person from conception is created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 Therein lies every person's intrinsic and immeasurable value. Not only at conception, not only at birth, but all the way through to the end of life. Man made in the image of God. That's why we value and treasure life. But the king of Egypt didn't see it that way. As you know, to give ourselves a, a running start at a chapter 2 today, let's start back in chapter 1, verse 15. I'll have it on the screen, or if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles under a chair near you, you're welcome to grab one of those. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other who was named Pua, and he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. And let me just interject. I trust that you had a meaningful time discussing these verses in the small groups last week. These are amazing truths that apply to us today. I know in our group there were a lot of awesome lessons and applications and insights for us that, that strengthen us, that give us courage in whatever we're facing today. Very grateful for these, these words in chapter 1. But as we see in verse 22, the next verse, sometimes good goes back to bad, and sometimes bad even goes to worse. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, referring to the Hebrews, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. This is where we pick up today, chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, <clears throat> like every good mother would, when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Let's think about that. Scripture doesn't say, so we can only speculate here, that many mothers surely were doing everything possible to hide their babies. 
We cannot even begin to fathom the terror on Israel at this time. Every newborn Hebrew boy was to be drowned by whatever Egyptian found them. Every citizen of Egypt was commanded to take part in the killings when they heard that a baby boy had been born to the Hebrews. Verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, that is Moses' mother, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the, mother, the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that these words were recorded and recorded under your inspiration so that they would be profitable for us today. Lord, only you know the life circumstances that surround each person here. Lord, we ask that your spirit would meet us right where we are and infuse spiritual truth into us. Guide our minds, our hearts, our spirits. Do what only you can do, and that is to reveal the magnificence of the truth of your word to us. How we look forward to what you will say to us today. Speak mightily, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's think about what we've read so far and just try to grasp all the pieces of the puzzle that just fell in place here by virtue of the sovereign hand of God. We see that the baby cried at the right time. That evoked compassion in the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. Compassion and concern so strong that Pharaoh's daughter was willing to defy her father and risk her life for this baby. The baby's older sister was still close enough to observe what was happening. She offered to find a mother to nurse the child. Pharaoh's daughter knew exactly what was going on. And Pharaoh's daughter accepted the plan. Now mother's, uh, Moses' mother gets paid to feed him. So after some time, the child grew, as it says. And miraculously, Pharaoh's daughter was still willing to adopt him. Think about the miraculous nature of all these steps. Like I mentioned last week, you can't make up plots that are this intriguing. 
Imagine the stress of the unknown at every turn in what we've read so far. Will the baby survive going down the river? Who will find him? Will that person kill the baby on the spot? Look at that, it's Pharaoh's daughter. What will she think? Okay, she's willing to keep the child and let the child's mother nurse him. But will she take him back? Think about it. After months and months of having time to think on this, undoubtedly Pharaoh's daughter had opportunity to change her mind. One can only wonder how many times Moses' mother cried and prayed tears as she fed her baby, wondering, will Pharaoh's daughter change her mind? Oh God, don't let her change her mind. Pharaoh's daughter had plenty of time to think about whether, it was not, whether or not it was worth risking her life for one random baby that she found floating in a basket in the river. But she never changed her mind. That's amazing. Here's what struck me as I read this much of the account. What if I could see all the twists and turns that God is working in my life and my family right now? What about yours? I think we would be just as blown away as we are with Moses' story, to tell you the truth. If we could see everything that God is doing in our life. Let me ask this. How do we know that God governs in the affairs of men? Who gave that quote? Benjamin Franklin to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. God governs in the affairs of men. So how do we know that God is directly and intricately and sovereignly involved in the details and happenings of our life? Let's hit the nail on the head one more time. You've heard it repeatedly for a number of weeks now. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Do you love Him? Are you called according to His purpose for your life? I hope that includes every person here. If that's the case, then God causes in our lives. We mustn't think for one second that what happened that day at the river for Moses and his family happened by chance. We mustn't think for one second that what happens in our lives from day to day happens coincidentally or randomly or by chance of fate. As we study the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that there is a theme that we touched on last week that I want us to drive home today, and it is this. God sees everything happening in our lives. He is involved in everything. Nothing goes without His notice. He is the one and only omniscient God. Omniscient, that's a big word that means all-knowing. If you studied word dissection in school, then you know that omni means all or every. And shunt or science, as is used in this word, refers to knowledge. It's where we get the word science, the study of knowledge, to know. 
Omniscient, therefore, means all-knowing. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it this way, having infinite awareness, understanding, and insight. Think about it. That word, omniscient, only applies to one being in this entire universe, God. 1 Kings 8.38 says, You alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. And as we're going to see as we continue, continue studying, God not only knows, He's involved. Involved in this plot. He's involved in your life and in mine. He's involved in your troubles and in mine. In your blessings and in mine. Perhaps if we walk away from here today remembering and absorbing nothing else, let us remember and live by the fact that God knows exactly what's going on in our life. He sees, he is aware, he understands infinitely. This understanding of the supreme knowledge of God, this belief is one of the core attributes of true faith. Faith knows that God knows. Would you say that with me? Faith knows that God knows. As we read ahead today, you're going to see that God is going to emphasize again and again and again that He knows what's going on in Egypt. But first we come to a very unique, unexpected, and life-altering event in Moses' life. Verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up. Now other scriptures tell us at this point he was 40 years old. When Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. There is our first indication that Moses knows who he really is. It says he went to look at his brethren, his people, who were in slave labor. It goes on to say, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He killed him and buried him. Verse 13, he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or judge over us? There is an indication that even some of the Hebrews, perhaps many of them, knew who Moses really was. And at the age of 40, it appears they despised him for it. Are you picturing this? When we stop and think about this account, there are so many factors at play. It's very possible that Moses, the man who God would call to lead the people out of Egypt, was a hated man by his own people. Who made you a prince or a judge over us? What Hebrew would say that to an Egyptian prince if they didn't know who he really was? He, the Hebrew went on to ask, Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter, the matter has become known. Lesson number two. Sometimes when we do what's right, God will allow things to get worse for us. 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Indeed, 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We touched on this point last week in, in, in chapter 1. And we're going to see it come up more than once in this book that sometimes God allows trials and suffering and persecution to follow righteousness. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. If you're in the middle of a life storm right now, or if you have one blow your way, so your way soon, yes, search your heart and see if there be any wicked way, as Scripture says. But then remember, and even find rest in the fact that God does allow bad things to happen to good people. But we must not forget to tie that truth to the truth of Romans 8.28. God works it for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God knows and He's working for good. We may not see it. We often don't see it. But that doesn't make one iota of difference. God is doing what He promised He would do. And that's all that matters. And faith rests therein. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. Did I mention that sometimes it gets worse? Continuing. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. We're going to see in the verses to follow. He, when it says he stood up, it means he fought off the shepherds. Lesson number three, sometimes we just got to keep doing what's right. Truly, all the time, we got to keep doing what's right. Paul understood in the New Testament the challenge of keeping the faith, of continuing the course and doing what's right. In Galatians 6, 9, he said, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. I read 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13 a few minutes ago. But listen to the two verses that follow. 12 and 13 say, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and have become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we just got to keep doing what's right. Back to Moses. Now we're not going to read in between the lines here, but there is no doubt that after Moses fled Egypt, he was afraid for his life like he had never been afraid before. Imagine the fears and the tears as he fled for days, realizing he would likely never see his mother again. Everything he knew, gone. The wealth of Egypt was his, gone. The comfort, the security, the aspirations were all gone. His family, gone. 
He was a marked man without a home, without a country, and likely without a cent to his name, except for the price tag that Pharaoh probably put on his head, if you know what I mean. He went from everything to nothing in an instant. And at this point of weakness and exhaustion in his life, he sat down by a well and found the strength to do what he knew was right. He fought off a group of mean shepherds, degrading, belittling shepherds, and then helped these gals draw water for their flocks. Now let's be honest here. Any single guy who would somehow find strength to help seven pretty girls. Just being real, he found the strength. But in this, we do see that Moses was a man of integrity. He could have joined the shepherds in mocking the girls and pushing them aside, demeaning them. Matter of fact, many of us have probably seen that kind of behavior. Maybe at school, maybe at work, maybe among, sadly, among friends. Moses could have joined them and laughed at them and laughed at the degrading scorn toward them, but that wasn't Moses. He fought the imposters off and watered the herds. Verse 18, when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you've left the man behind? Now I have to interject. This is so typical of young girls when they're impressed by the new strong guy on the block. We're probably safe to assume that even though Moses was wiped out and exhausted, etc., from, from, from fleeing from Egypt, he was still built like a prince, you know what I mean? And these girls were obviously flattered and, dare I say, maybe even a little ditzy. You could just hear their dad, you mean you just left him there after what he just did for you? What does the dad say next? Invite him to have something to eat. That's one man talking to another man. Verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his, his daughter Zipporah to Moses. See that? This whole thing smelled of romance right from the start. Verse 22, then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Lesson number four. Sometimes when we do what's right, God will allow things to go well for us. God is always working things for good. And sometimes we get to experience the good this side of glory. And when we do, savor the blessings and give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, you know these three verses. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving is next month. Are you itching to worship God in a special way for His goodness to you this past year? I still hear that verse from last week in chapter 1. And God was good to the midwives. I suspect every person here can say, God has been good to me. You think of the song we sang as little children, God is so good, God is so good, God is so good. 
God is so good. He's so good to me. That song is still true today. Verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, meaning it didn't quit after this king died. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Now listen carefully to what it says next. Verse 24. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Now you know why the title of today's sermon is God Knows. The verse says, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God took notice. That's the Bible using underline, highlight, bold, and slightly larger font all at the same time, right? My church family, let us not miss this point. God knows. He knows what's going on in your life and mine. He hears. He remembers His own promises. He sees. He takes special notice. If he sees when a sparrow falls to the ground, Matthew 10, 29, how much more will he observe the intricate details of your life and mine? The verse says that two sparrows are only worth one penny. But we know that you and I are worth the blood of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, Yes, God knows and cares about what's happening in our life. Yes, He sees the hidden sorrows. Yes, He sees the hidden joys. Yes, He knows what no one else knows. And why is that so critical for us to understand? Why is that so significant? Because He is God. Throughout this entire book of Exodus, God is going to repeatedly show mankind who He is. I am God. He says over and over, I am the Lord. What is His name? I am. And yes, the Almighty looks down and cares about you and me. He knows and He cares. He understands. Listen to the verse again. It says, God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Friends, the God of Exodus is our God. He is your God and my God. If our faith is in Him alone for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life and strength for this life, then this amazing God in Exodus is our God. We're not going to cross into chapter 3 today, but I want to peek ahead with you at verse 7. Listen to the riches of this verse. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Friends, do you think God knows what's going on in your life and in your family and in your workplace, your relationships? Oh my, yes, He knows. When Ruth and I drove to Seattle Children's Hospital this past Wednesday, 
and watch the surgeon's team take our firstborn to the back to do whatever they had to do to repair his eye. By the grace of God, Ruth and I rested because we knew that God was watching over our firstborn. We knew that God had a plan for this. And that plan, whatever it was, regardless of whether we see it, that plan is a good plan. And when we took a break that afternoon and walked to the cancer unit on the other side of the hospital to meet our very dear friends with their two-year-old going through chemo for cancer, by the grace of God, we rested together because we all knew that God knows. And that knowledge reassures our faith. It lifts our spirits. It gives us reason to even rejoice, let alone rest in the matter. Why can we rest and rejoice no matter what's going on around us? Why? Because He is God. And He is a good and perfect God. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing God. Any less than that, and you and I would have every reason to run and hide from Him because that kind of power and that kind of knowledge in the hands of a less than holy and perfect and supremely good God is a dangerous situation to be in. But no, that's sovereignty. That all-knowing, that infinite power and understanding rests in the hands of our perfect, holy, good, and right God. He is the one with infinite understanding, and His good will will be done. There is nothing else like that kind of peace and safety and hope in this entire world. It's why the songwriter said, when I am alone, give me Jesus. You can take all the world, just give me Jesus. Yes, God knows and He cares. Exodus 2 is an amazing chapter for us, isn't it? Let me suggest two summary points. Number one, rest in the fact that God knows. Trust Him. And two, if you walk away from here today like me thinking, I am so privileged to have this kind of a relationship with that kind of God, then don't forget to share Him with others. There are others who have no heavenly Father like you and I have. If we have truly experienced Him, then we will want others to know Him too. Go and make disciples. Tell them what God has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of You because You, being the one who created this entire universe, being the one who, who created us, and sustains everything at your own will. We rest, Lord, and we trust because you are good. 
Thank you, Lord, for knowing the details of our life. You emphasize this over and over and over to Moses, revealing your good character to all of us. And Lord, this day we choose to trust you as the God who knows. The God who knows all things. The only being who wears the title omniscient. Lord, help us to not only understand these truths, but to rest in them, to align our lives with them. If you are the God who knows and who is working all things together for good, then let us be a people who love you and are called to your purpose for this life, not our own. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the confidence you give us because you know. We're thankful for the peace you give us, no matter what the storm. We're thankful for the joy you give us. That command to rejoice always is not one that we are commanded to obey in our own strength. It's one we are commanded to obey because you give the strength to do it. Today, we stand in the fear of you. A healthy, good, reverential, awe-inspired fear of you because you are the one true God. Help us, Lord, to not contain these truths to ourselves, though. Give us a passion for sharing this great God with others. May they see you as the only one who can meet their deepest needs, the only one who can free them of the guilt of sin, the only one who can give them hope of eternal life, the only one who can grant them goodness every day and in every circumstance of this life. You are the one, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.